0: Luke chapter 12, we return to Luke's gospel now after six weeks absent Four for our series on election and predestination and two, as we observed, um, Good Friday and Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. But we are back in chapter 12. And while you turn there... Um, I want to ask a question for you to consider. Are you prepared to suffer persecution? Are you prepared to suffer the sake of Christ? It is that very topic that our Lord begins teaching and instructing his disciples in chapter 12. I'd like to begin just by reading the first 12 verses of Luke chapter 12. You'll see our Lord is busy Training, equipping, motivating, strengthening his disciples to endure persecution for his sake. Luke chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. But the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. It's a challenging text, challenging topic. And yet our Lord is a realist. He knows he is heading to the cross. He knows he will be killed. And he knows his disciples will be treated in a similar fashion. And so he begins to teach them and to motivate them, both with carrot and stick, both with warnings and encouragement in this passage to prepare (laughs) for persecution. Now, Luke chapter 12 does not occur in a vacuum, if you remember. Chapter 11 ended with Jesus going to a dinner at a Pharisee's house that didn't get very far because when the Pharisee took offense that Jesus did not ceremonially wash his hands, Jesus just laid into him. And the primary charge that Jesus brought against the Pharisees and the lawyers were their hypocrisy. He didn't use the term, but he used the imagery. Remember, hypocrisy is a term that actually comes from Greek theater. They'd wear a mask And if they were playing the happy role, they'd have the happy mask. If they were playing the sad role, they'd have the sad mask. And the reality was the actor and the facial expression underneath the mask could be very, very different. And so Jesus compares them to whitewashed tombs, to a cup that's clean on the outside and inside full of dead men's bones. What you appear to be on the outside is not, in fact, what you are on the inside. That is the the nature, the heart of hypocrisy. And they did not heed his challenge Instead, they up their game in response before they have been following him, looking for an opportunity to accuse him. But look at verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things lying in wait for him. Literally the Greek, hunting him. To catch him in some sort of thing he might say. So that's the context now where Jesus responds. So we've seen the Pharisees' response to his rebuke. They up there again, now they're actively hunting Jesus, pressing in on him, asking him lots of questions, trying to trip him up. Jesus, in his turn, responds now. We see in chapter 12, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first, meaning this is now a new topic being brought up. He's now developing something new. He's introduced this theory before, this, not theory, this theme before. Here will be our first extended teaching. And he begins with his disciples, but Luke's made the point that around his disciples are thousands upon thousands. So this is something Jesus has done previously when he did the Sermon on the Plain. He's speaking to his disciples in the presence of the multitudes, warning them. In fact, all of chapter 12 is one long address to the disciples and the multitudes. This morning we're looking at, at the issue of suffering, and who will you fear, and who will you trust And then next week, we'll begin to look at the danger of money pulling away discipleship. He's trying to solidify his disciples. He's trying to strengthen his disciples and guard them against the very topics and issues that will cause them to fall away. So this morning, we look at persecution. Money and wealth come next. He ends it with a call to action, a call to response. Verse 35, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. So let's dive in, look at this in three points, three paragraphs, three points, as Jesus prepares the disciples and consequently us for persecution. One other thing to note is all the members of the Trinity are involved in the argumentation of Jesus. We'll see the Father, we'll see the Son, we'll see the Holy Spirit guarding God's people keeping them faithful in persecution and suffering is a Trinitarian effort. And Jesus provides Trinitarian motivation. So what's the first command, the first exhortation? Beware the subtle danger of hypocrisy. Beware the subtle danger of hypocrisy. That's really the warning. Everything else explains that. Beware, he says, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That phrase leaven is an interesting concept, first introduced in Exodus 12, 39, where the people of Israel leave Egypt in such haste that they don't have a chance to let the leaven spread through their food. Over time, it becomes associated very closely with sin. And the reason for that is this. A little leaven leavens the loaf. You only need a little bit of yeast, and it will spread, and it will spread throughout the entire ball of dough, will it not? And sin, in the same way, once it gets a foothold in, will spread. And so what Jesus is saying, and here's point A, is hypocrisy spreads with pervasive subtlety. Hypocrisy spreads with pervasive subtlety. Once we allow that crack between who we are on the inside and who we are on the outside, once we allow there to be the tiniest shift that that integrity is broken, we may tell ourselves we'll only be a hypocrite in this one area. We may tell ourselves we'll only have a double standard in one spot, but we will get better and more accustomed to it, and it will spread until we too resemble the Pharisees who are clean on the outside, apparently, and inwardly full of dead men's bones. Hypocrisy spreads with subtle perverse subtlety, pervasive subtlety. I can't even read my own notes. Apologize. Listen, in fact, to, um, to Paul linking this because it's, it's kind of interesting that the, the use of leaven is associated with the exit from Egypt and the Passover. And the, the great Passover was the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. In First Corinthians 5, 6-8, you get some of the idea of how this notion of leaven works. Do you not know... That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's the idea with leaven. It spreads. It spreads. You get a little bit in, it spreads. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really an unleavened, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this was the besetting problem of the Pharisees. This is also the sin that Jesus consistently is most provoked by. And we, we get upset with certain sins and we go in marches against certain sins. And if it truly is sin, God doesn't like it. But, but note with consistency what sins most provoke Jesus, what, what he speaks the strongest against. And it will uniformly be hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Uniformly. And so Jesus warns his disciples about letting there be the slightest foothold of hypocrisy. We see next that true discipleship is revealed in persecution. True discipleship is revealed in persecution. I think in this context, the the type of hypocrisy Jesus has in mind is specifically that hypocrisy that will, as pressure mounts from the world, act and say one thing in the world to get by to avoid friction and yet you know church on Sunday morning be something different you know it's easy in a room full of friends and like-minded people to say high and great things about the Lord Jesus it's easy to extol our never-ending love for him it is much harder to live that way in the workplace in your neighborhood there's pressure isn't there there's pressure to sort of develop a public and private persona. And what Jesus is saying is the reality of his disciples' faith, the reality of our faith, will be seen not in the easy times, but the hard times. The reality of his disciples' faith is revealed in persecution. This This is not a new theme for Jesus. He twice in Matthew makes the statement, you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not because we're saved by enduring, but genuine faith will be distinguished from false faith by its endurance to the end. He's giving His disciples a warning so that they will endure. Once you start getting comfortable having this hypocrisy, once you get comfortable with this sort of secret, private life, public life, you are going to crumble in the face of persecution and pressure. Point C... Whatever is on the inside will be made known. That's what Jesus explains in verses 2 through 3. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on rooftops. See, we are tempted to become hypocrites because we think we can get away with it. What Jesus insists is that ultimately, everything will come to light. Ultimately, the tree will be known by its fruit. Now, frequently this happens in this life. Jesus has already said, if you turn back to to Luke chapter 6, Jesus has already closed his first great sermon with exactly this point. Verse 43, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. Notice Jesus showing the continuity. The good treasure on the inside produces good actions on the outside. The evil person, out of his evil treasure on the inside, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks Um, James Edwards, a commentator, says this, Humans are unable to either fully or finally disguise the motivating impulses of their lives. Indeed, they inevitably and perfectly live out what they actually believe. The desire and intention of human hearts comes to light in the shape of human character and actions. Thorn bushes do not bear figs. Briars do not produce grapes. Grapes. A tree is recognized by the fruit it bears. Now ultimately it is the judgment seat of Christ, ultimately it is the great judgment of God where where all secrets will be revealed. Ultimately that, that, that certainty remains. But this first call is something we should pay heed to because I know for myself there's a tremendous pressure as a as a vocational pastor to keep up an appearance. To look like a godly man. There's tremendous pressure for that. It's very easy to let that disjunct come in, to let that crack open up. So so what do you do if you find yourself at times like me being a hypocrite? What what do you do if you do have some secret sin in your life, if you do have some double way of living? Well, I'd recommend to you uh, the following. First, be aware of the danger. The whole point of leaven is Jesus is telling you, He's telling me, it won't stop just there. You're not going to be able to compartmentalize it. And that's what sin does. Sin promises us. No, no, it'll, it'll be okay. It'll just this one little area. It will spread (laughs) pervasively and subtly. Recognize the danger that you're in. I need to recognize the danger I'm in. We need to repent. And we need to confess our sins to God. And, and James would encourage us to confess our sins to one another. The best way to, to deal with secret sin is to expose it to the light. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says this, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. but The one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. God can forgive secret sin. God can forgive hypocrisy. The danger is if you don't deal with it, it will spread. It will permeate. And you may end up, I may end up being like these Pharisees who are clean on the outside and inwardly full of dead men's bones. So beware the subtle danger of hypocrisy. Next, have the right fear and the right trust. Trust. Have the right fear and the right trust. And what Jesus is contrasting here is fear of man and trust in man over against fear of God and trust in God. Here's where God the Father enters the argument. And so let's just read. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God. Why? Even the hairs on your head are all numbered? Fear not. you are of more value than many sparrows. OK, what's going on here? Well, there's a simple contrast. And Jesus starts with the stick, and then he'll move to the carrot. And here's the contrast. What can man do to you? Well, the answer is simple. Man can kill you. Man can lock you up like they locked up John the Baptist. Man can cut off your head like they did to John the Baptist. That's all man can do to you. The contrast is, in comparison, what can God do to you? This is not popular reasoning in today's culture where we want to make God look as friendly And as harmless as possible. But this is absolutely where Jesus starts. The contrast is from the lesser to the greater. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more they can do. But the point is that man can kill you. They can lock you up. But at a certain point, they run out of things they can do. They're done. The blank here. Man can only do you temporal harm. Man can only do you temporal harm. Jesus has just predicted. In fact, if you turn back to chapter 11, this is exactly what man will do. Look at uh, verse 49. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. So they can do that. Man can do that. Man can kill and persecute. No mistake. This isn't a promise of deliverance from persecution and suffering, rather a call for strengthening and protection of faith and perseverance through suffering and persecution. Man can only do you temporal harm. And this is really where faith comes out, because if you're only really convinced of this life, and this life only, if heaven is some sort of foggy dream you have, then the people who threaten to kill you are threatening to take the one thing you have, this life. But if we can have eternity in view, if we believe the promises of God, if we believe there is a resurrection from the dead, if we believe there is a kingdom that is coming, then to quote Jim Elliot, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And and that's where the proof will come out in the pudding. What are you trusting in? What are you valuing? What are you prizing? Don't fear man who can only do you temporal harm. In fact, this links back to Psalm 118 that we looked at two weeks ago. Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, he can persecute. He can kill you. He can make your life miserable. He can throw you in jail. But that's all. That's all he can do. Well, that, that can seem intimidating, <laughs> until we look to God, who is far, far more intimidating. And again, this is not popular reasoning these days. But Jesus spoke about hell and judgment more than any of the Old Testament prophets, or than any of the New Testament writers. The, the most consistent teaching on judgment, damnation, and hell is found in our Lord's lips. Look at what he says, I warn you. Whom to fear? Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, notice this: He doesn't say man kills and God casts into hell. He says man kills, God kills too, and after that, God casts into hell. Remember, we in our study through the sovereignty of God, we looked at God's sovereignty over things, and the Lord says, "I kill and I make alive." God kills too. And God can cast into hell. And when you stand back and you look at that, you think of the brief vapor that this life is. I mean, the, the older I get, the faster time seems to pass by. I can't believe my son is as big and as old as he is. I imagine and I hear from my elders that it just speeds up. Life is a vapor. Like you get one of those glade air fresheners and you just sort of shh. That's life. And eternity is a very, 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 very long time. God can do the same thing man can do. The Bible is filled with stories of God putting people to death. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, God puts them to death. Ananias and Sapphira, God puts them to death. So it's not as though one can do you temporal harm and one can do eternal harm. One can do temporal harm, the other can do both. And in no uncertain terms, Jesus tells us twice clearly, fear him. He begins, I'll tell you who to fear, fear him, who after he's killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Proverbs instructs this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The ultimate indictment against sinful man found in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, 3 verse, no, sorry, in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, is there is no fear of God before their eyes. we got to make up our minds who we're going to fear. Are we going to fear God, take Him seriously, take His word seriously, take the biblical statements of what He can do to His enemies seriously? We ought to. Or we can fear man. It's going to be one or the other. When, when Saul spares Agag and makes a statue of himself, what does he tell Samuel? I feared the people. He didn't fear God, he feared the people. They might get mad at him. They expected some reward, some booty, some spoils of war. God had ordered that all the animals be destroyed. Saul feared the people, not God. He lost the kingdom. Proverbs that the fear of man brings a snare. Now the beautiful thing about the fear of God is if we can get a handle on the fear of God, it frees us from all other fear. It frees us from all other fear. You can say like David, what what can man do to me? And so Jesus tells us very seriously, God has authority to kill and cast into hell. We know what he will do to his enemies. We know what he will do to his adversaries. And we all came into this world naturally because of our rebellion, because of our sin, his enemies, rebels. And this God who can kill and cast into hell has offered to freely pardon and forgive us. How, How crazy, how foolish would it be of us to reject that because we fear man. And God is offering through his son, Jesus Christ, to forgive every one of us who will bend the knee, turn in repentance and faith to him, place our trust upon him, believe in him, Be freely forgiven. Free pardon is offered. In fact, the irony here as we move into the next point is that by way of the fear of God, we can get into a relationship where we are not terrified by him as much as we love him. Oh, we still take him seriously, but no longer as judge, but as father. He starts with the stick. Make no mistake. If your loyalty goes with man and this world, God will crush you. And God will cast you into hell. But, if you cast your allegiance and loyalty with Him, now we bring to point C, the carrot. God can be wholly trusted upon in persecution. God can be wholly trusted upon in persecution. We ought to fear God. We we ought to, to be very afraid of being His enemy. But, as His sons and daughters through faith in Jesus we can take comfort in this wonderful promise of our Lord. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs in your head are all numbered? Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. In you know that song, his eye is on the sparrow. In fact, um, Renee and Lois are going to be singing that for special music in, in two weeks. Love that hymn. And here's what Jesus is again arguing from the lesser to the greater. Our God, who is a fearful and frightening judge, our God who will judge the living and the dead, is also a God who cares for his creation. And so Jesus takes one of the smallest, most insignificant things that they could think of, two sparrows that are, five sparrows, sorry, that are sold for two pennies. And he insists not one of them is forgotten by God. In fact, if you look, think back to a few weeks ago when we looked at God's interaction with the world, we saw those statements of, of God being directly concerned for His creation. And remember Job 38.41. God's rebuking Job at this point. And he says this, Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help? You realize the birds outside when they're chirping are crying out to God, and God feeds them he cares for them he he's aware of them God's not just involved in big matters not only that he, every hair on your head is numbered now for some of us that numbers dropping precipitously <laughs> but they're still numbered they're still numbered and when this is, the point is, is is twofold here one God's knowledge of us is exhaustive that's the point He he knows about every single sparrow in every forest, in every tree. And he doesn't forget them. He doesn't get distracted by something else when they fly out of his mind. He's still caring for them. He's still feeding them. Now note, just because God's aware of them and just because God cares for them doesn't stop them from being bought and sold and killed and offered as sacrifices. (coughs) What it does mean is Those things that happen don't happen accidentally. They don't happen because God stopped paying attention. His knowledge is exhaustive. And and his knowledge for us, every hair on your head. Turn turn to me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, David takes this notion of God's knowledge of us and, and unpacks it, and he marvels. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain its high jump a little further. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I've got to stop and realize what God is saying through David here. Yes, God uses the processes, but my my wife is pregnant and God is at this moment knitting together a human being in her womb. Yes, using my wife's body. Yes, using the medical processes. But God is doing that. He is doing the knitting because he cares. He's not far and removed, distant, sort of watching on. He is active and at work, knitting together an image bearer as I speak. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden for you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as of yet there was none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the hairs and more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Turn back to to Luke 12. His knowledge of us is exhaustive. His care for us is immeasurable. His care for us is immeasurable. Here's, Here's Jesus' point. God knows everything, and specifically God knows everything about you and me. Now, he's already used that argument as a motivating fear, he knows the secret sins. He knows the double life. He knows the double standard, and he will expose it. So confess, repent, turn, seek forgiveness. On the flip side, if you're in a trial, if you're facing persecution and difficulty, God is intimately aware of that. He hasn't escaped his notice. He hasn't forgotten about you. He left you in the corner and got busy doing other things. Implication, he has reason and purpose for the things that you are in. And he cares for you. And so caring for you, that's that's the point he gets to in the the last verse. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Point two, his care for us is immeasurable. Jesus has already taught them in the previous chapter, we get to call God Father. A privilege not afforded to any previous Israelite. So even though Jesus by no means is saying we won't go through hardship, in fact, you'll see in a few minutes, he he assumes it will happen, the confidence we can have is that God has a purpose in it. Listen, Listen to this quote from Joel Green. Human ignorance might lead to hasty and unsuitable responses to persecution. But according to the theodicy of this text, and theodicy is simply the philosophical term for dealing with the problem of evil. If God is so good, why do bad things happen? That that whole problem. Dealing with the theodicy of this text, recognition of the mystery of God's incomparable knowledge and care makes evil endurable. He has a good reason. It's not because he doesn't care. It's not because he doesn't know. He does care. He does know. He has a purpose. And, and with that confidence, we trust in God. He's, he's not capricious. He's not mean. He knows and he cares. Have the right fear and the right trust. Have the right fear and have the right trust. In fact, he'll emphasize the, uh, the father's care for his flock. Look a little later in chapter 12 and verse 32. Here trying to free his disciples from, from the crippling fear and love of money. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's not a grinch. That is a loving Father. And this loving Father has good purpose and intention in refining our faith and in leading us into trials. And we're to take confidence. He knows what He's doing. He knows what's going on, and He cares. This brings us now to, to Point three. The final exhortation, the first, he warned them, beware danger of hypocrisy. Second, don't fear man, fear God and trust Him. Finally, <clears throat> confess Christ before men in the Spirit's power. Confess Christ before men in the Spirit's power. I tell you, he says, "'Everyone who acknowledges me before men, "'the Son of Man will also acknowledge "'before the angels of God. "'But the one who denies me before men "'will be denied before the angels of God. "'And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man "'will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes "'against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven.' When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Okay, there's a lot here, but look at it in four points. First, in verses 8 and 9, Jesus will reciprocate your confession or denial of him. Jesus will reciprocate your confession or denial of him. That's the unescapable logic. Specifically, your confession or denial of him in the face of man, sinful man, not just men in this room. This is in a context of persecution. Because we know that when a culture starts to get tighter on these issues, it's not, you, can't, you can't stay on the fence and right now, more and more as our cultures and the cultural revolution of human sexuality and gender and all of that, there's no more room. What side do you want? People are being asked. And in Jesus' context and in the first century, where people stood with Christ was the preeminent, preeminent question. And so this notion of confessing or denying in front of men is not, well, I confessed you at church, Rather before men, meanings before the world, and Jesus makes it perfectly clear. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges before me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge in the much more weighty location before the angels of God. This is in God's throne room. You know, it's as if to say the the Father will ask His Son, "Is this one of your flock? Is this one of your?" Your, your brothers—is this one of the people you died for? And the Son of Man, Jesus, will either say, "Yes, that one's one of mine. It's one of my sheep. I died for him. I died for her. It's one of my flock." Nope, I never knew you. It's the other option, right? We see that in Matthew six: "Apart from me, I never knew you." So this is this is—the stakes could not be higher at this point. What will the Son of Man say to the Father in front of the angels about you when you stand before Him? Will He confess you as His own? This is one of mine? Whom I delight in? Whom I am well pleased? Or will they say, "I I don't know Him. I don't know her. And Jesus indicates in this context, it hinges upon Him simply reflecting back, modeling back what we do with Him before men. This is tough stuff, and again, this is not teaching salvation by publicly confessing Christ, but it does make it clear the nature of true faith. When when the when the chips are down, when the stakes are at their highest, when you have to choose between the favor and the pleasure, the security of this world, with the pleasure and favor of God, what will you choose? See, it's really difficult to know what your faith rests in when you think you can have both. Right? And for a long time in this country, we've been able to apparently have both. We could have the favor of the world, God's favor. We could have material prosperity and spiritual prosperity and fruitfulness. That is incredibly unusual in the history of the world. Incredibly unusual. We I can praise God for, for, for a waning of persecution. We thank Him for that. But we should expect persecution. We should expect trouble. And Jesus here is telling us to prepare for it in advance. Understand that he's not giving them this counsel when they're in the midst of the whirlwind. Before the persecution comes, he's preparing them. And persecution could well be coming for us as well. In fact, in some ways, I think it already has. We would do well beforehand to prepare, just like Jesus is preparing his disciples. Now, The issue of confessing Him is not simply a a yes-no, one-time matter. Why, Why do I say that? Because the Apostle Peter, in Luke's Gospel, denies Jesus publicly, right? And yet Peter is restored. Our Lord prays for him. Our Lord restores him. He goes on to write two books of the New Testament. And so if this is simply a matter of have you ever once denied Jesus publicly, well, then you're lost, that Peter's done that. Rather, I think a better way of thinking about it is this. Are you a confessor of Jesus before man or a denier of Jesus before man? What would summarize you? As, as the tension resolves, what are you? Make no mistake, Jesus is saying, if you're a denier of him, you will be denied before his Father. This, this, turn, to, turn to 2 Timothy. Turn to 2 Timothy 2. This teaching was so... Prized and elevated in the early church, it became part of one of their earliest doctrinal statements. Five times in what are called the pastoral epistles are trustworthy statements, and they evidence meter and rhyme and rhythm. And as best as we can tell, these are early church statements, a pithy way of summarizing truth, a memorable way of summarizing truth, possibly even early church hymns and i want you to look at the truths that the early church in paul's day thought were so central and important to bear in mind that they packaged them in memorable ways what what are those truths that they put in there look at second timothy chapter 2 verse 11 and 12 Paul usually introduces it with the statement is trustworthy. He's confirming the validity of this early church doctrinal statement or hymn or catechism or whatever it was, however it was served. The statement is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us exactly what Jesus said here in Luke. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You See, the early church, and you can read on church history, our men's group went through a, a book on church history, know that this, this was the hallmark of genuine faith. Um, those who remained faithful amidst the persecution under Domicletian and Nero and, and others, they were called the confessors because they confessed and did not deny. In fact, our word martyr simply comes from the Greek word to testify. This was someone who testified. This was someone who confessed Christ. And very quickly, Rome's response to such people who confessed was to kill them, so that martyr came to mean one who's died for their testimony. When you read John 1 in the Greek, there came a man to be a witness from God, his name John. The word for witness is a martyr. It just meant witness. We should take Jesus' words here seriously. Yes, this is not a simple matter of, you denied him once, you're you're lost, you're done. Otherwise, Peter would be cast out. But ultimately, what Jesus is telling his disciples, what he says in Matthew, is true faith will persevere. True faith will stand in this persecution. Now, he'll give us some hope in a minute or two. But he sets this crystal clear, there's no misunderstanding this. It's just hard. Jesus will reciprocate, your confession or denial of him. Which then brings, with three or four minutes left, us to the unforgivable sin. Um, much ink spilled on this. I think in Luke's context, it's not as difficult to understand. I will, I will tell you what I think it means, not go through the 15 different options that the commentaries lay out. He says this, Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So we saw the Father were to fear, and we saw that we were to confess the Son in 8 and 9. Now the Holy Spirit makes an appearance. What is Jesus saying? He just said, if you deny him, you'll be denied. Now he says, well, you can speak against him, that'll be forgiven, but you better not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. The ultimate one who testifies to who Jesus is is the Spirit of God. Jesus has said as much earlier in chapter 11 when he spoke of the miracles, he did the Spirit's miracles. Remember, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. When Jesus did miracles, he was exercising the power of the Spirit because Jesus had set aside the independent use of his divine attributes. And so the Spirit is testifying concerning Jesus, and, and Jesus points out when they accuse him of being in league with Satan that, no, you know perfectly well, the Spirit has been testifying and you're rejecting it. Here's what I think the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is in, in Luke's context. And this shows up in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, all in close proximity to the people accusing him of doing miracles by the power of Satan. Here, I'll, I'll read a quote by Bach. A far greater warning also emerges. One can speak on occasion against the Son of Man and be forgiven. But the decision to deny him publicly and reject him obstinately is the sin that cannot be forgiven the one who permanently denies the son is judged to blaspheme the spirit is to deny the testimony he offers of the son or another quote this sin consists in a conscious willful intentional blasphemy of the clearly recognized revelation of god's grace in christ through the holy spirit here's the picture the holy spirit reveals truth The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit works upon the conscience and the mind and reveals veils that we can see. And so you come to know this is true. The Spirit shows you Jesus is the Son of God. I am a sinner facing judgment. He is the one sacrificed. And knowing that that is true, and that Spirit's testimony, you reject it. I don't want that. Maybe you even start accusing Him of being satanic. That rejection, yeah, there's, there's, there's no coming back from that. That final point we, we talked about earlier of reaching a point of, of suppressing truth and suppressing truth and suppressing truth where finally you've stuck your fingers in your ears for so long you can't take them out. That's, that's what I think is going on here. In Acts 7.51, Stephen in his, his sermon which led to his martyrdom, Accused Israel around him, you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. One one final quote on this, and and we can in the future ABF unpack this further because I got to move on. But, But Bavink writes this a sin against the gospel in its clearest revelation, not doubting or simply denying truth, but a denial which goes against the conviction of the intellect, against the enlightenment of the conscience, willful and intentional. Point C. Expect and do not fear persecution. Expect and do not fear persecution jesus doesn't say if he says when right verse 11 it's not if it's when when they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities do not be anxious about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say expect do not fear persecution Like I said, God is sovereign if he deems to allow some of his people in some part of the world for a while to live in relative peace without persecution. Praise God, that's wonderful. But we can get so used to it that when we start to lose our position of favor, when all of a sudden to be faithful to God's word, to be faithful to biblical ethics, to be faithful to the gospel, is to make us spoken ill of, mistreated, passed over at work, we start to grumble and complain. We should expect this we should be thankful that we're not being taken in front of courts as Jesus tells his disciples they will. Praise God that it's not that bad yet, rather than grumbling and complaining because it's not as good as it was. Expect and do not fear persecution. Paul says it really simply in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's, that's plain So don't, don't try to run away from it. Don't, don't, don't collapse. Well, how do you make it through? You just, you just muscle up. How do you, how do you make it through persecution? How do you, how do you confess Christ? You don't do it in your own strength. The wonderful truth here Jesus gives us is the Spirit, a promise that in that day, in that hour, the Spirit will give us the grace and the power to do this, which is why he says not to be anxious, because here's the futility of, of anxiety. God promises to give you the grace you need for the day, right? Jesus says sufficient is the day for the trouble. And Lamentations 3 tells us his mercies are new every day. So if persecution comes tomorrow, that grace for persecution will come tomorrow also. Here's my problem if I'm lying awake at night worried about being persecuted. I'm trying to bear in my imagination tomorrow's trouble, tomorrow's suffering, tomorrow's persecution with today's grace. And it will feel insufficient because it will be insufficient. God did not give me tomorrow's grace today. Does that that track? Jesus is saying, don't don't be anxious. And and he's talking to people who in their lifetime will see Christians killed, thrown in jail, heads cut off, crucified. Church history tells us Peter gets crucified upside down next to his wife and daughter. Very real possibility. In very short order, they will see what will happen. Stephen will be the first Stephen will be the first, and then it'll spread like wildfire. And you can imagine living with a very real possibility that they could come, they could arrest you, and you could be nailed to a cross. And if you try to bear that fate now with today's grace, well, you'll be disobeying Jesus because he says, don't worry about that. But it'll fail, and you'll think, I could never do that. What does Jesus promise? Don't be anxious. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is, this is the promise of God. He promises His Spirit will give us the power. It's not in our own strength, muscling up our determination that we're going to make it through. It's by relying on the Spirit. And this again is the testimony of Scripture in Acts chapter four, thirteen. The apostles Peter and John get pulled in, and they, they try to intimidate them, and they flog them, and they tell them to stop preaching the name of Christ. And they, here's what Acts. 4.13 says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. <laughs> they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. These are common, uneducated men. And you know, the hour came of God's Spirit. And I, and I believe Acts Peter, filled with the Spirit, said, God's promising, if we trust Him, if we don't fear Man, but we fear him, he will see us through that. He won't keep us from that. He's just promising to see us through that. And that's, that's the care. That's the promise. Every member of the Trinity at work here, as we focus to confess Christ, as we fear the Father, it, it, taking him seriously as we rely upon the Spirit. Now, Jesus thought it was important before the storm came to prepare His disciples for persecution. I think we would do well to prepare as well. Don't stick your head in the sand. Don't pretend it's not coming. It may very well come. We should expect it. It would be an unusual mercy of God if we were shielded from it. And look to Jesus' counsel to how we will stand, recognizing the stakes, recognizing the promises, recognizing the danger and all that's there we might persevere and be faithful to the end. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement it offers. And Lord, we don't like to think about these things, especially when life can be kind of good. And yet, you were training your disciples for what was to come. Lord, let us be trained as well. Let us not be caught by surprise, perplexed, When the storm comes, let us determine beforehand that we will fear You, not man. What can man do to us? That we will trust You and Your Spirit and Your Word. Help us to be faithful by Your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.